You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Amen. You can be seated. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad. And I'm glad to be here with you today. My name is Drew Humphrey. I have the privilege of serving as college minister here at Highland. Today we've been able to worship, open the word. We've already had two baptisms earlier and a couple other gatherings. It has been awesome. It's been a wonderful day. I am glad to be here. I hope you are as well. Pastor John is out of town for a couple of Sundays. And so although he started a new series called Good Trouble last week, we're going to click pause on that. He'll pick that back up when he is back. Today we're asking this question, who sits upon the throne? You know, whenever a leader steps down and a new leader takes their place, we naturally ask this question, who are they? Who are they? Can I trust them? What are they about? What is true about them? These are normal questions. You know, when uh, the Queen of England passes away and, and now it's the King of England, King Charles, you, you know, you ask these questions. Who are they? Who, who are they going to be about? How are they going to communicate? Maybe it's a CEO of a corporation or your favorite football coach, whatever it is. You ask the question, who are they? But it's not just one question of who are they. There's also the second question that really matters. What do I think about them? Who are they and what do I think about them? That's these two circles that are going to really frame our conversation this morning. Who are they and what are they? What do I think about them? So that left circle, who are they, is, is this question of what is objectively true about them? What, despite anything I might think, like what is just true about them? The right circle is this more subjective. It's how do I think about them? even if it's not necessarily true, but how do I think about them? Hopefully these two circles line up. Hopefully they're the same. Who that person is and what I think about them is the same, but oftentimes that's not the case. Oftentimes we're outside of reality on either one of those things. For instance, uh, you could have a good and moral leader, but someone else might internally uh, not respect them. Or this person could be a leader with poor character and someone could think about them in a positive way or they could honor them. And so to illustrate this, let's talk about birds, okay? Birds. Uh, there'll be some pictures of beautiful birds on the screen, and you can see all the different colors, right? So I'm going to ask you the question. You can answer out loud. What are some things that are true about birds? Just what comes to your mind about birds? Say it out loud. They fly. They have feathers. Anything else? They sing. That's a good one. That's the first one that we've had. Okay, so uh, worms. They eat worms, I think. Okay, and bugs. They have nests. They lay eggs. They, some of them are beautiful. Some of them are ugly. Okay, so these are truths about birds. If you told me, oh, birds love to play cards, or, or birds love to give high fives, or they love to watch Survivor on Wednesday nights on CBS or something, like, that's not who birds are, okay? But they do sing, and they do fly, and they do eat worms. They lay eggs. They have their nests. These are true about birds. Uh, but, you know, there's also another way to illustrate this kind of subjective view, what I think about birds with this photo. Birds aren't real, okay? How many of you guys have heard about this birds aren't real thing, okay? Yeah, so there might be some believers in the house. I think this is a joke, okay? But it's starting to become kind of a question for me if it's a joke or not. So uh, what birds aren't real is, is that basically it's this movement, it's this sort of joking, I guess, conspiracy, that, or maybe real, I don't know, that, that the government of, at some point in time took all of the birds in, they replaced the birds with robots that look like birds so that they could spy on us, and the birds perch on the power lines to charge their batteries, okay? And so that's a real thing. You can buy the shirt, you can buy the stickers for your car, you can join the Facebook group. I, I love that it says birds aren't real, but then there are the birds on the top of the sign, right? And so... Uh, <laughs> 
this is a real thing people think about, right? I mean, that's just, whatever your belief is about that, that's just not true, okay? Birds are not governmental robots made to spy on us, okay? But, I mean, less jokingly, there are cultures in the present tense and in the past that worshipped birds as deities, that thought that birds had demonic even beings within them, right? And so there are these misunderstandings about birds that can be silly or can be serious. And so let's stop talking about birds, okay? Let's shift the focus to God. That's why we're here today. A.W. Tozer says this, what comes to mind about God is the most important thing about us. I'm gonna say that again. What comes to mind about God for us is the most important thing about us. What comes to my mind, what we think matters the most, not just what we do, not just what we say, but what comes to my mind. And that's important, especially in the Bible Belt and in church-going people like us. You know, oftentimes it's what we do and say that we think matters the most. But what's true is that what we think, what we believe internally is the most important thing. What's in my heart? What's in my mind? And so when we look back to these two circles again, let's look at it again, but with God in mind. Who is God and what do I think about him? Both of these questions are so important. And if you get either one wrong, you have a lot of problems in your life. What's true about God or what do I think about him? And so for some today, we need to learn for the first time the truths about God's character. We, we may not understand or have not grasped fully these truths about God's character. Or for others today, it may not be that. It may be that your perception of God has gone off course, that you have misunderstood uh, when you think about God, what you think about is off the rails as it compares to what's true about God. It could be either one of these things. It could be both. See, thinking untrue things about anyone is damaging. If you think untrue things about me or if I think untrue things about you, we have a problem in our relationship. That's damaging. But I would say that thinking and believing untrue things about God is perhaps the most destructive mental and spiritual exercise that we could partake in. The implications of that are so destructive. Uh, they're, they're so, the downstream effects of, of misunderstanding, thinking about God, misunderstanding who God is, uh, can, can change generations, not just affect relationships between you and me. And considering I'm, I'm not only going against myself and my own sin and my own insecurities, but, but I also have an enemy, and you have an enemy whose nickname is the deceiver. Well, the battle for these two circles is very real. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Zechariah chapter eight. Zechariah, some of you are probably like, I don't know where to go on that one. Okay, I don't blame you. It's a tiny book. Second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you get to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the beginning of the New Testament, right? Go back two books. You're gonna find Zechariah. We're gonna be in chapter eight. While you're turning there, I'll tell you, Zechariah was about 500 years before Jesus. Although he was two books behind Jesus, he was 500 years before him. One thing I love about Zechariah, he was a priest and he was a prophet. Most people were either a priest or a prophet, right? And, and so when you're a prophet, you hear the word of the Lord and you just distribute it. It's like good, bad, or ugly. Here you go, okay? When you're a priest, there's a sensitivity to the people. There's a ministry to the people. So to be a prophet and a priest was a powerful thing because you listen to the Lord and you minister to the people. And this is a season for the Israelite nation. They've just returned from exile, Remember, because of their sin, they had been exiled out and they've returned now. And God is using Zechariah, the priest and the prophet, to encourage this group of people, the Israelites, because they're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding the city. And considering there were, the Bible tells us, 400 years of silence before Jesus' birth. Zechariah was 500 years before Christ. 
That means this is the last century, the last generation of God's voice speaking into the people of Israel before Jesus himself would be born. So we ask these questions, what will God say in these final years? What will God say in these final words? So we'll read from Zechariah chapter eight, starting in verse one. Today, I'm gonna be reading out of the New Living Translation uh, because there are a lot of interesting phrases and words in this chapter. And as I was studying each of the different translations, ESV got some of them really right, and NIV got some of them really right, and even King James had some, some good hits there as well. And I, but then it, it sort of, in, in other ways, they would miss it a little bit. And so the NLT, I felt, was the clearest thing for us today. So if you're on a smartphone, you can go to the NLT. If you're not, it'll be on the screens in the NLT as well. Verse one, chapter eight of Zechariah. Then another message came to me from the Lord of heaven's armies. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. My love for Mount Zion is passionate and strong. I am consumed with passion for Jerusalem. So we ask this question, who sits upon the throne? The first thing we see is a king who loves unconditionally. A king who loves unconditionally. He said in verse two, my love for Jerusalem is passionate and strong. I'm consumed with passion for Jerusalem. One of those difficult words that I mentioned to translate is this word for passion. Your translation, if it's not the NLT, might say jealousy. I'm consumed with jealousy. I'm jealous for Jerusalem. And the Hebrew word there is actually kana. And, and one of the ways to interpret it is jealousy, which is why that, scripture, that, that word is used in the English language. Another way is zealous. Zealous and jealous. And so that's why I love the word passion. Because sometimes when we just think about the jealousy of God, it can be a confusing word, although it is true. But jealousy and zealousy, kind of, or zealousy, is that a word that sounds good? Jealous and zealous come together into this word passion. God is consumed for passionate love for you. I mean, it reminds me of a friend of mine who uh, has recently asked a girl out on a first date. And before that first date could come, she said yes, okay? And so they were gonna go on this first date, but there was a little bit of time between those two moments. And another guy swooped in and asked her to go to coffee, right? And he found out about it. And of course, he was consumed with jealousy, consumed with passion. What if she, you know, likes this other guy? What if I don't ever get my first date? You know, just that, that inner turmoil, that twisting, that, that, you know, even the beginning stages of love, right? It's not just this deep love. It's a first date and there's already this, twisting this consumed with passion, this passion for us. Here's the difference. God's love is like that, but it doesn't wear off. It doesn't fade when the honeymoon period ends. His passion is endless for you. His love is, is endless for me. I'd say if there's one thing you can even take away from this message, I put it in a red box in my notes that I would not forget to say this. It's this simple elementary truth that is so foundational. No one loves you as much as God loves you. No one loves me as much as God loves me. I don't care how great your marriage is or how great your relationship is. I don't care if you had the best parents or the most difficult home life growing up. No one loves you as much as God loves you and no one ever will love you as passionately as he loves you and me. We can see this passion fleshed out when we look back to verse one. The chapter, chapter eight starts with this phrase, then another message came to me. So when I read that in chapter eight, another message, I think, well, what was the first message? And so you can read it with me. Let's read that first message. It's in chapter seven, just a few paragraphs up, verse five. Let's read verses five and six in chapter seven. Here's the first message that comes before chapter eight. Chapter seven, verse five, say to all your people and your priests, during these 70 years of exile, when you fasted and mourned in the summer and in early autumn, here's the message, was it really for me that you were fasting? Meaning, was it really for God? And even now in your holy festivals, aren't you eating and drinking 
just to please yourselves? Here was the first message. The first message was that it was a calling out. It was a reminding. It was that their fasting, that their worship was empty. It was meaningless. It was void of true love relationship, true sacrifice, these things that come when when we're not empty, but we're full. So God's calling them out in that. And as I, I was thinking about it, you know, I was thinking about myself. I was thinking about even our church. Many times I can can have meaningless acts, empty acts of worship. My prayer life can, can really just be shallow prayers before meals. Or my worship, I can just sing these songs that I know because the words are on the screen and I know the tunes and I sing them and I don't really think about what I'm saying. My fasting, the times of fasting might actually just be days of hunger. There's, there's nothing spiritually powerful about them. There's nothing hungering of righteousness or hungering for prayer, but it's just days of hunger. My giving can be ritualistic. I can be just like the Israelites, empty, less than God's best. And although we are no different from them, although I'm no different from them, so too, praise the Lord, God is no different today than he was then. Because his, his second message, as a reminder, this, the first message was that in the face of our empty relationship, here's God's message for us. He is passionate, zealous, and jealous. His love is for us, despite our drift, despite our empty worship and relationship. And see, God's been this way from the beginning. At the very beginning of this nation, the Israelite nation, the father of the nation was Abraham. And God made this promise to Abraham that this Israelite nation would come from his line, right? And, and even at the very beginning, it's Genesis 15, this incredible story where God tells Abraham, take animals and, and, and cut them in two and, and place almost like an aisle, right? like, like a, a marriage aisle. And, and then it says that Abraham fell asleep and that the Spirit of God walked down this aisle between the two sides of the carcasses. And you're thinking, what in the world is going on here? What kind of covenant, weird juju stuff is happening in Genesis 15? What does this have to do with God's love for us? What's amazing is that at that time in Genesis, what they would do a lot of times, if you were making a covenant with someone else, you would split the animals in two, and the two of you would walk together down that aisle to signify my word, my covenant can be trusted. I can be trustworthy. But here in this story, Abraham is sleeping, and God walks down it alone as if to say, you can trust me even when you drift. You can trust me even when your relationship is empty. I love you that much. It's not just for this city. It's way before this city. And it's not just for this people group. It's for us because in the New Testament, it says this, that God demonstrated his passionate love for us. How? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the heart of God from the beginning until today and throughout all of eternity that he passionately loves us. And that love is strong. Amen. And so back to those circles, who is God? And what do you think about God? Because if it's true that God loves us like this, if that's actually true about him, just as birds fly, God loves like that. What I think about God really matters because that can be twisted. I can be deceived. I can, I can misunderstand. I can think wrongly about God. And, and some have been deceived to think that God doesn't love them or, or that God couldn't love them or even perhaps that you have to earn his love. No, the truth is that God is consumed already with passionate love for you and for me. Who sits upon the throne? A king who loves unconditionally. Secondly, who sits upon the throne? Our selfless rescuer. Our selfless rescuer. Let's keep reading in verses three through five. And now the Lord says, I am returning to Mount Zion. 
I will live in Jerusalem. If you're an underliner, maybe underline this next word or circle it. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. The mountain of the Lord of heaven's armies will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Once again, old men and women will walk Jerusalem streets with their canes. They'll sit together in the city squares and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls at play. Our rescuer is selfless. See, the rescuer must come before the rescue can begin. Notice in verse three, it said that God first returns and then the city changes. It's, it's in that order. The, the rescuer comes and then the rescue happens. If you notice, it gives us three ways. It says first that the, now the city is called faithful. You know what the city was called in Isaiah chapter one? It was called a prostitute. And now it's called faithful. And here it's, uh, it's called a holy mountain. But in 2 Kings 23, it's called the mountain of corruption. A mountain of corruption is now a holy mountain. And finally, it has become safe for the young and the old, for the vulnerable. I mean, we can contrast that to, to the times before this in the Bible where we read about how unsafe the city was. See, before God was on the throne, the city was unfaithful. The city was unholy. The city was unsafe. But after God is on the throne, everything has changed. Everything has been rescued and being rescued. And this is true for our life. Without God on the throne of my life, I am unfaithful. I am unholy. And I, I can be unsafe. And many of us haven't really considered that about our sin. I really, I really thought a lot about that word safety this week. That I, Many of us haven't even begun to think about that our sin does not just affect us, but it creates an environment that can be unsafe for others. Some have never considered that. Others have lived that. Your own sin has created unsafe places for others. Or perhaps you grew up in an environment or you currently live in an environment where someone else's sin has created an unsafe space for you. And you might say, I could never be a safe person. I could never be a faithful person. I could never be a holy person. It is not possible for those things to exist in my life. And if you say that, I, I say this, hear the word of the Lord. Look back at your text at verse six, the very next verse. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. All this may seem impossible to you now, a small remnant of God's people, but is it impossible for me? says the Lord of heaven's armies. See, there's a question mark on the end of that sentence. Is it, is it impossible for me? But, but it's, it's an implication. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sarcastic question. God isn't actually asking. He's saying, what is impossible for you is possible for me. He is so big. We are so small. He is so able to do the impossible things that we could never do. And so verses seven and eight continue. It says, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Underline this phrase. You can be sure that I will rescue my people from the east and from the west. I will bring them home again to live safely in Jerusalem. They will be my people. I will be faithful and just towards them as their God. You can be sure, the Bible says, that God will rescue you. There's an assurance of our rescue. This assurance for us is both for the future, but also, listen, Highland, it's for our present. For our future, it's a, it's a rescue. Think about the Israelites. For them, it's, it's like the future rescue found in the Messiah. 500 years from then, Jesus will come and there will be a future rescue that they can put their hope, their life, their security, their eternity in, and that will lead them. It's secured in Christ, just like for us. Although we don't look 500 years ahead, we look 2,000 years behind to the same event that our future can be secured and sure in Christ. 
There's a future rescue. There's a future safety that can be found in the eternal place of heaven. Recently, Shane and Shane were here to lead worship. They're worship leaders, and Shane Bernard is one of the Shanes. And he said this, if you are in Christ, your future is bright. If you're in Christ, your future is bright. There is an assurance for your rescue. Every Christian will be 100% rescued. Every Christian will be 100% healed, 100% delivered. For, for some, that rescue, healing, deliverance will happen here on this side of heaven. But for all who are in Christ, it will happen for sure in eternity in heaven. You can be sure of it. It's not just a future rescue, though. It's also a present rescue. Of course, God was saying to this city, this city will become faithful right now. This city will become holy. This city will become safe. He's talking about the present tense. And see, God has been doing that. He's rescuing and restoring and making these unsafe places, unsafe people. He's been doing that, and he still does that today in our present. He, he, he does this right now for us. He makes us safe. He makes us holy. He makes us faithful. And as we think about our culture, not just the city from 2,500 years ago, but our culture, our place, one thing that we've recently noticed is that our wider culture is quickly making God the enemy of the cultural ideals. And oftentimes it's based out of the belief that God's ways are outdated, that God's ways are even oppressive to what is best for society. And, and uh, when you think about these movements in our wider culture today, they're related to, to good things. They're, they're good things that are happening in our culture, like the equality for the races, the equality for, for women, the loving all people unconditionally, caring for the sick, taking care and meeting the needs of the poor. Oftentimes when, when culture is fighting for those things, God and the Bible are viewed as being too outdated for what our society needs or too oppressive for what we're doing as a culture now. And, and I want to pause and say, no doubt Christians have, have some self-inflicted wounds here where we have mishandled the character of God. We have misrepresented God's word. But when we go back to the truth of who God really is, not just our perception of him, but who God really is, the truth is, is that God is not the enemy of all those things. God is the originator of all of those things. Way before America cared about this stuff, way before our world was fighting for some of these things, God was the originator of these cultural causes for diversity, for equality, for unconditional love for all people, to care for the sick, to care for the poor. He was way ahead of that. He's not the enemy. He's the source for these ideals. Long before anyone moved towards them as a nation or a culture, God's the rescuer of our culture in a present tense. See, our world doesn't need something new to come along and rescue it. It needs something very old. It doesn't, it doesn't need something old like 70 years ago, you know, the, the way of American life. If we could just get back to it, something way older than that. Way even less American than that. There's something that God has been doing for a long time as he rescues. And so who is God? He is a selfless rescuer for our future. And yes, even for our present he makes us faithful, holy, and safe. And finally, we ask this question one more time. Who sits upon the throne? The third and final thing, a father to all nations. Keep reading and go to verse 18. We're going to jump to the end of the chapter. Verse 18, a father to all nations says this. Here's another message that came to me from the Lord of heaven's armies. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. The traditional fast, the times of mourning you've kept in the early summer, midsummer, autumn, and winter are now ended 
They will become festivals of joy and celebration for the people of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. Verse 20, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. People from nations and cities around the world will travel to Jerusalem, to this city. The people of one city will say to the people of another, come with us to Jerusalem and ask the Lord to bless us. Let's worship the Lord of heaven's armies. I love this phrase. I underlined it. I'm determined to go. People will say that. I'm determined to go there. Many people in powerful nations will come to Jerusalem and seek the Lord of heaven's armies and ask for his blessing. Finally, verse 23. And this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. In those days, 10 men from different nations and languages of the world will clutch at the sleeve of one Jew and they will say, please let us walk with you for we have heard that God is with you. I want somebody to do that. Grab my sleeve. I heard God's with you. Can I, can I go with you? God is a father to all nations. That, who sits upon, that is who sits upon the throne. See, God's heart, it beats for the nations. Every tribe, every tongue is made in God's image. And I, and I can just say that one thing I love about Christianity, and honestly, it's one of the reasons I believe it to be true, is this love for the nations, this emphasis for all nations. I mean, have you ever considered that Christianity is really the only religion to be cross-cultural or multi-regional at all? And, and what, I, what I mean by that is that every other religion, including even the Jews in the Old Testament, they were always primarily tied to a particular race or to a particular region. And of course, the followers of these other religions, they might scatter and they might move. And of course, that's happening a lot now as, as people can travel easily and move easily. Uh, but there's always, almost always primarily connected to this particular region, a particular race or a particular people group for these other religions. But now think again about the Christian faith. And in that first century, like when Jesus was resurrected from the grave and the Holy Spirit poured out and, and the church is, is going, right? That someone in the first century could be a Middle Eastern, probably former Jew who became a Christian. They're, they're converted to Christianity. They're living in the Middle East and they're in the same religion as someone in Egypt and someone in modern day Turkey and someone in Rome. Three different continents. And that's happening just in the generation of Christ. I mean, that is unbelievable. It's unthinkable at that time. But now even think about this. Christianity has spread not just in that region, but all across these continents, all these people groups, north, south, east, and west. I want you to see this image on the screen. This data comes from 2010 out of the Pew Research Center. They polled 230 countries and territories using over 2,500 censuses and surveys. And, and this is what they found, okay? We're Team Purple. I'm sorry for the Baylor fans, the TCU thing. I know it's tough right now, but we're the purple guys, okay? And I mean, think about this, how amazing this map is. And of course, oh my goodness, look at the countries. Look at how far away they are. That's amazing. But think about what's inside all of those countries, there are people in countries who believe completely different things. They look completely different from one another. Some of them are socialists. Some of them are capitalists. Some of them are first world. Some of them are third world. Some are uh, you know, in a hot climate. Some are in a cold climate. Some are close to, to Jerusalem. Some are incredibly far away. I mean, why is that happening? Do we have the best Instagram? Do we have the best marketing? Like, what is going on? How could that be possible? It's because God's heart beats for the nations. It's something from the Lord. It's not something of, of a mobilization effort that we have. It's, it's that God's heart is for all nations. God is so much bigger than one nation or one city. 
And God is so much bigger than the American Christian cultural box that we put him in. I mean, people from all these other countries, like their, their, their history, their culture is coming through the way that they understand God, the way that they come to the word, and God loves them, and God receives them, and God meets them in those histories. God meets them in those cultures. His love is so passionate. He's consumed for all children of all nations. This is who God is. And so what does it mean for us? It means a few things. Number one, it means we, we better pray for the nations because God's heart beats for the nations. So in prayer, as we're trying to align our hearts with God, we better be praying for the nations. And secondly, we need to watch our tongues as it relates to the nations. What we say, what we listen to, what we read in the news, how do we, how do we filter that? How do we let that go into our heart but also come out of our mouths if God's heart is for the nations? And finally, we should go to the nations. We should carry the gospel as we were commanded to by Jesus. And as I close, I just want to settle on that idea that we should go to the nations. I mean, this really messed me up this week when I, when I started to sit in this idea of God's heart for the nations. Look back with me at verse 19 and 20. It says, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. The traditional fasts and times of mornings you have kept in all these seasons, here it is, are now ended. The fasts have ended. They will become festivals of joy and celebration for the people of Judah. So love truth and love peace. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. People from nations and cities around the world will travel to Jerusalem. So here's what the Old Testament's happening here in Zechariah. The heart of God here is that God has taken these scheduled times of fasting for sin and he's converted them to festivals for his faithfulness. That's what's happening in this passage. It's amazing that, that it's like God saying, hey, you know what you know, I've realized is that people don't want to come to a party that people don't eat at. Okay, every party you go to, people are eating. So this idea of fasting for sin, it, it, was, it was converted into this festival, not of the people's faithfulness. Remember chapter seven, but of God's faithfulness. And so what happens is we stop the, fa the fasting and we've converted it to the festivals and, and what you would expect happens. People are like, I want to party. I want to have fun. I want to celebrate God's faithfulness. I'm going to go. And verse 20 says that this is what happens. It, it drew people into the city of Jerusalem. It started to draw people in to God, to the holy place, the faithful place, to the safe place. That was the Old Testament heart. But then the New Testament comes and Jesus comes and the Holy Spirit comes and God then turns these festivals that were once fasting, now they're festivals, into a Holy Spirit fire. So see, it's not just God's heart for the nations, it's his mission for us to the nations. It's amazing what happened. The fasts became festivals, and then in Acts 2, the festivals become the fire in the New Testament. And that fire sends us out from the heart of God into the nations. It's amazing in Acts 2, it, it, this is a, the scene is, is right after Jesus' death, resurrection, his ascension, and then 10 days later, the disciples are kind of waiting around, Jesus has done his thing, he's floated up in the sky, it's like, what's going to happen? 10 days later at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of fire, and, and what happens there is so amazing because the Spirit of heaven is poured out, it fills the church, it fills the disciples with God's Spirit, and we read this passage in Acts 2, and it's amazing, it's this amazing, you know, Acts, all these different verses in Acts 2, but we, we drive by Acts 2.5. Acts 2.5 says this, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews from every nation. Why is that? Why were there Jews from every nation? Because one of these festivals that used to be a fast for mourning, for sin, has been turned into a festival, and now everyone's there. 
And the population of Jerusalem would go from 100,000 people to a million people. So all these people from all these nations are here and God has gathered them in and that's when he pours out his, his spirit. That's when he pours out this new mission. See, when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2 at this festival, a shift happens in the people of God. And, and hear this, a new mes message is downloaded for them and for us in the New Testament. It's a new message. And this message is this, is that in Acts 2, they start speaking these other languages. There's an international focus that starts to happen. When they were coming, now they're going out. And, and then even just 10 days prior, Jesus' last words, right as he's about to ascend into heaven, right, is go therefore to all nations. It's a new mission that's downloaded. See, the mission was in Zechariah chapter 8. You remember, I told you to underline it. They will come. I'm determined to go to Jerusalem. That's what it said. But then the New Testament mission is that we will go to them. That's what the Spirit does from fasting to festivals to a fire to go. See, God's heart, yes, is for all the nations, but also it's his mission for us that he's given to us. God has turned our fasting and mourning of sin into festivals of God's faithfulness for the fire to send us out to all nations. And so the question for us is, how will we respond to this mission from God? Do not be deceived. Do not be distracted. This is the heart of God. This is who God is and how we think about him and his mission matters. How we give, how we go, what we do, what we don't do, how we talk, how we pray. All of this matters because this is the heart of God and something that's been downloaded into us. And as we think about those two circles, God loves you unconditionally. God selflessly rescues you. God's heart is for the nation, has given you a, and downloaded something into you, into your life. And, and this is what we need to do. We need to re-understand those truths about God and we need to align our thinking towards those beliefs. And so who is on the throne? It's a God who loves you. It's a God who rescued you. And it's a God who sends you to all the nations. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not be deceived today or distracted you are the one who is on the throne and you are a God of love. You are a God who rescues and you are a God who sends to the nations. I pray to that this, this afternoon now, Lord, today, that if there's anyone in this room who's feeling a draw to the mission field, who's feeling a calling to a particular nation, an unreached people group, a place of ministry that needs to happen in the world. I pray that you would seal some things today, that your heart is for the nations and that these drawings in their spirit, Lord, that it would, it would be ignited today in a fresh way. It would be sealed today by your spirit, that they would go, that they would give, that they would sacrifice their lives, that they would give years of their lives to the mission field. Father, for all of us, that we would be a people who pray, that we would be a people who give, that we would be a people who watch our tongues about the nations and that we honor them and that we love them and that we serve them and we support them because this has been your heartbeat from the beginning, Lord, a God of all nations, of all people. God, so would we not be distracted or deceived? Lord, we have right understanding of that. And finally, God, I just beg you that if there's anyone in this room who does not know the deep, passionate love that you have for them, that they would realize that in a very special way today. God, that they would understand that you, you love them in such a way that does it, they don't have to earn it. No matter what happened last night and their sin and their drifting and their sleeping, Lord, that you love them.
passionately and you are for them and you want to rescue them and you want to make them safe and faithful and holy because God, when you are on the throne, our world can look like that. Our nation can look like that. And God, my heart can look like that. Faithful, holy, Lord, and safe because you are on the throne. So Lord, we worship you now in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we close in worship? We're just gonna sing one song of worship and I love this song because it has a call and response aspect to it. It says things like, does the Father truly love us? And we say he does. Does the Spirit move among us in that fire? He does. Is God for the nations? He is. These are all the things that we will just sing. And, and so I pray that the Word of God as you sing it could be, could be sealed as, as it comes together in worship and song. But also, if you need to come to the altars in prayer and surrender, the altars are open in front of me, to my right and my left. Perhaps you need to do some business with God about how He loves you. Or perhaps you need to do business with God about how he's sending you or he wants to rescue you. Whatever it is, you can come alone to the altars. You can come with your family, with your roommates and say, God, I want to realign my thinking about you. Lord, that you love me, that you rescue me, and that you send me to the nations. In Jesus' name, let's worship him.